Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 29 this morning. So over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the letters of Jesus uh, to seven churches that are found in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. So far, up to this point, we've studied three of those seven churches. We've covered Ephesus, which I stated was probably the mother church. This is the place where Paul spent most of his time during that second missionary journey. And so probably these other churches have moved out from Ephesus. So that was probably the, the mother church there. And then you have Smyrna and Pergamum. That as, uh, let's look at that map. So you can see as we're going, we're going up the coast here, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. And then today we're going back down towards Thyatira. All right, so in studying these churches, in studying these letters, we've noticed that there's a pattern to the letters um, that have been written to these churches. That we have this authoritative opening where Jesus says something about who he is, and that explains why the churches should pay attention to what he's saying about them. And then in each one of these, there is a word of encouragement to the churches. He says things like, I know your works. He says, I know your faithfulness. He says, I know your struggles. Unfortunately, though, in all but two of these seven churches, there's also a statement of rebuke that points out areas where the church is struggling. Uh, and also, in each one of these letters... Uh, there's a way back for all of these struggling churches. Jesus presents, here's what I like about you, here's what I don't like about you, here's what you need to do in order to come back into uh, the good graces of the Lord. Uh, and Jesus also mentions that in each one of these, to each one of these churches, in each letter, there are consequences to not coming back. He says, this is what you're doing wrong. You need to repent of that, and if you come back, here's this promise, here's this reward, but if you don't come back, if you continue to go down this sinful path that you have been following, then there will be consequences uh, for you and for the church in that regard. And this week, we're looking at the fourth letter uh, in Revelation, which, as I said, is the letter uh, to the church in Thyatira. Of all seven letters, this letter is the longest and unfortunately, it also has the most to say in the rebuke section, um, which is interesting because I, as I was studying for this, the commentaries that I was reading, it said that Thyatira, out of all of these cities, was the least known, it was the least important, and it was one of the least remarkable cities in that entire area. And yet somehow, uh, they went way off the rails really hard, really fast. Uh, I mean, this place was just considered an expendable military outpost that was about 40 miles east, southeast of uh, Pergamum. And the only thing that was of any importance in that city was its commerce. Uh, they did a lot of trade, and so if you went into the city, you'd find things like wool, you'd find linen, leather, purple dye, and bronze. Thyatira was, was well known for their bronze. Uh, so they, would, they had all these idols that they would worship, and so they cast a lot of those uh, out of bronze. And along this city, there was this extensive network of trade guilds. 
All right, so each one of these, you know, there would be a wool guild, a linen guild, a leather guild. So each one of these would have its own guild that dominated the daily life of that city. And each one of those guilds had a patron deity uh, that was worshipped through feasts and celebrations. Uh, and many of those celebrations involved sexual immorality. And so we see this several times throughout uh, these rebukes to these churches that, that they're giving themselves over to sexual immorality. And that's because that's how the deities in those places wanted to be worshipped. And so one of the more prominent deities that was worshipped here is Apollos. Apollos was the son of Zeus and he was the little g god of the sun. All right, so he's the one that made the sun cross you know, the sky and all that kind of stuff in their mythology. And so why am I telling you all this? Why do you need to know all that? Well, knowing these things helps us better understand the opening line that Jesus gives for his authority. So he's speaking directly to some of these issues that pop up in Thyatira. And you'll see what I mean as we read Revelation 22, 18 to 29. Let's follow along with me as I read that. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she, she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of their works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this letter, just like all the other letters, starts with an authoritative opening. And we'll notice real fast that Jesus there starts off by referring to himself as the Son of God. He says, thus says the Son of God. So everything that comes after that, if that statement is true, you've got to listen to everything that comes after those words. Right? He is setting himself up in direct opposition to Apollos. Right? He's saying, you have Apollos, the son of Zeus, the God of the Son. But Jesus says, I am the only true Son of God. Apollos is nothing. And I am everything. So this city, they worship a worthless idol, right? Zeus can't see. Zeus can't hear. Zeus can't do anything because Zeus doesn't really exist. And if the father can't do anything because he's a worthless idol, then what does that make the son capable of? The son is also a worthless idol. And Jesus states, I am the only Son of God that is worthy of our worship. He says, from, from the beginning of this, we have seen him refer to himself. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. 
He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And so when he speaks, everyone should listen. And along with that, along with stating that he's the son of God, he also mentions two other aspects of his character, right? So the description of being the son of God is very clear. The other two are open to interpretation. We've got, we can say what we think it means, but it's not as clear as this idea of him being the son of God. He talks about having uh, eyes uh, with fiery flame and, and feet that are made like bronze. And so when, when I talk about this stuff, just know that this is interpretation. It's people looking into it. They think that this is what he might be referencing in this. Uh, and so no one can say for certain, but when he's talking about having eyes like a fiery flame, He's speaking to his omniscience. The omniscience of God is this idea that he knows everything. Everything that could possibly be, he knows it. He understands it. And so he's able to see it all. Nothing escapes that vision. It doesn't matter how dark of a room you're in doing whatever it is that you're doing, God can see it. God knows. Right? He knows what's going on in your home. He knows what's going on at your office or in your classroom. He knows what's going on in your heart. And there is no place that you can run. There's no place that you can go to get rid, to to hide from his fiery gaze. We may think we have secrets. I used to tell people when I would do marriage counseling and they would come before me and I would say, look, you're here today because you guys are having some issues and you can lie to me all day long and you've accomplished nothing because I, I just don't know. I can only know what you tell me. I can only know what you have shown me but you're not lying to God. God sees it all. He knows it all. There's nothing that's going to be hidden from His gaze in in our lives. And so we have an all-powerful, all-seeing Son of God speaking to the church in Thyatira. He says, I know everything that you're doing. I can see everything that's going on there. In the same way, He's saying the same thing to Oak Grove here this morning. I see you. I know what you're doing. There's nothing that's going on here that you can hide from his fiery gaze. And it also says there that his feet are like fine bronze. And again, what does feet of bronze mean? What does that have to do with anything? Well, do you remember before I said that Thyatira was known for their bronze? They were known for the the images and idols that came out that were made of of bronze. They were famous for that. And so it's interpreted here that Jesus is taking a direct shot at what they're best known for, their imports, exports, whatever it is, that bronze that they send out. He's saying, I've got feet of bronze. You think you have bronze? I've got bronze. I've got bronze in my feet. He's essentially saying that all those wonderful statues that you make, all those things that you bow down and worship, they're nothing like me. They're nothing like me. Right? My feet are like bronze. I am stable. I am immovable. And if I choose to do so, I could use these feet of bronze to crush you all. Jesus is calling his shot here with this idea of bronze feet. And then following the uh, authoritative introduction, Jesus commends the church for what it's doing well in verse 19. He says there, he praises them for their love. He praises them for their faithfulness. He praises them for their servants, uh, service and their endurance. And so, unlike the church in Ephesus, the church in Thyatira, it loves people really well. 
It's doing a great job of loving people and serving people. Uh, we will discuss that their doctrine could use a little bit of work. That's what Ephesus had going on for them. They had strong doctrine. They did not put up with unbiblical teachings or attitudes, but they got to the point where they didn't love people well. Well, we have the opposite problem here happening in Thyatira. They, they love everybody really well. They serve them really well, uh, but their doctrine begins to get a little bit dodgy uh, when they start getting some false teachers in their, in their midst. Uh, they are, they're a church that serves, and we're not given any insight into what that service looks like. But it, is, it exists in such a way that it is praised by Jesus along with their endurance. Right? This church, like all the other churches that we have seen in Revelation, uh, it's surrounded by pagan activity. Right? You have these huge monuments set up to all these different gods. You have all these different temples uh, that people can go into and worship. And so we, we know that as they are serving the Lord there, they are surrounded by darkness and sin. And sometimes that darkness and sin begins to persecute and push its way into the lives of the Christians there. Uh, but it says that the church in Thyatira are enduring even in the hardship that's presented by a culture that's hostile towards the gospel. And Jesus says that their works have amplified through the course of their existence. Right? They have not been stagnant in their effort. He says the last works were better than the first works. So they're increasing their service to each other. They're increasing their service to the community. It says that they have not been satisfied in what they have offered of themselves to the Lord. They continue to grow in their service. And they've got a greater work at the end than what they had at the beginning. And when you read that, it's like how... Can a church that has this much going for it, how can it wind up having the longest rebuke section out of all these different churches? And it winds up having the harshest correction as well. If you don't repent, then really bad things are going to happen. And the reason for that is there's a problem going on in Thyatira. The problem is, we see it in verse 20, it says, I have this, Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, who is Jezebel? Well, this is, it's highly unlikely that that's actually the woman's name. All right. This is almost certainly a reference back to the book of First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, where we find a woman named Jezebel, who was the queen of Israel, who ended up marrying King Ahab. And this woman was probably the most wicked queen in Israel's history. She was absolutely terrible. Right, this woman, because Ahab was a notoriously weak king, he had no, no backbone of his own. And so this woman led him around, forced him to do things whether he liked it or not. And so because of that, uh, she led her husband to worship pagan gods. On top of that, she also had her, her husband murder the prophets of God. And so those that would speak out against that, she would say he needs to die, and the king would make that happen. And there's also an instance where she had him kill a man because she wanted his vineyard. So she just had him murdered because she wanted something that he had. So she's a terrible person. Right? She was also very smart. She was also very influential and deceptive. She was domineering. 
And she was also sexually immoral. And so, as you see, by being referred to as Jezebel by Jesus, it's certainly not a compliment. Jezebel's not something that if you've got a friend who's about to have a kid, Jezebel's not the name that you're going to suggest to the, the future daughter. Right? Jezebel was a terrible, terrible person. And in Thyatira, there is a woman who proclaims herself to be a prophetess. And to be a prophetess, you're, you're claiming that you speak for God. You hear directly from God and you speak what you hear. And so she is in the process of deceiving disciples there into committing sexual immorality and eating food that is sacrificed to idols. And she's claiming that God says it's okay. So here again, we see another instance where the church is allowing the world's sin to creep into the doors. We saw that a little bit in Pergamum last week where Jesus mentions the same sinful activities, right? Food sacrifice eating food sacrificed to idols, and committing sexual immorality. But the difference in these two seems to be that there was a slow creep towards worldliness in Pergamum, but here in Thyatira, it's someone in the church that's actively teaching that God has changed his mind on everything that he has said against these things, and now he's for it. They're actively teaching that God would change the course of history and in his nature and say that eating food sacrificed to idols and and being sexually immoral is now a good thing it's now a way to honor him it's now a way to worship him and the church here isn't doing anything about it they have the scriptures they should be able to obtain some sense of doctrine from those scriptures about who god is They should understand about God's holiness at this point in history as God's people. They should understand that God has an unchangeable nature. Nothing about Him ever changes. What is sinful for us is sinful because it goes against His nature and His nature never changes. So what is sinful in the past is not going to suddenly become okay in the future because God is not going to change. Worshiping idols is not suddenly going to become okay. God isn't going to suddenly alter His thinking on sex and sexuality. It started off as being meant for a man and a woman within the confines of marriage, and it hasn't changed. And it will never change, no matter what anyone says, no matter how much the culture pushes against that and says, no, no, you're just reading an old book and now you're even reading it wrong because God has changed his mind. It doesn't change because God doesn't change. They had the scriptures, they should know this. So when this woman shows up and starts proclaiming things that goes against what God has clearly stated throughout history, someone in that church should have done something about it. Someone should have stood up and said, no, you will not teach that nonsense in this place. But they've welcomed her in. No one is doing anything about it. Why aren't they doing anything about it? Well, the short answer is they didn't want to. They didn't want to do anything about it because following Jesus is difficult. Y'all know that, right? 
Following Jesus is difficult. It goes against a sin nature that is inherent within us. So being faithful to Jesus on a daily basis means that I have to battle with myself in order to bring Him honor and glory. I don't always want to fight that fight. There are days when I get tired of the battle. And you, you want to know what my sinful flesh wants to hear and accept I want to hear someone say, it's okay for you to do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Do what makes you happy. If it feels good, do it. Right? I want to hear that. You want to hear that, whether you will admit it or not. You want me to stand up here and say, whatever your pet sin is, you want me to say it's okay. That God doesn't mind. That He just loves you so much that He'll forgive you anyway, so don't even worry about it. Your sin is okay. So I just I want to hear that God has suddenly changed his mind about certain stuff that he is very clear on because I don't want to fight this fight anymore. Right? I just want to give in, give in to temptation, give in to anger, give in to rage, give in to lust, give in to coveting, give in to it all. It's hard to follow Jesus. I want to hear that I don't have to love people well because I am a selfish person. And so are you. We want to hear that it's okay for us to look out for us. Right? It doesn't matter if I love my neighbor because suddenly, all of a sudden, God has changed his mind and that's not as important as it used to be. But that's not what happens. Whether we acknowledge this or not, this is how every one of us feel on some level. So what do we do when someone shows up and says they have a new revelation from God? God told me something and now, suddenly, we can act however we want. We can worship these idols of sex, money, power. Whatever it is, whatever your thing is, you can have it. Because suddenly God is okay with it. Right? Depending on how tired we are of the battle, we might just welcome that teaching with open arms as we try to convince ourselves that it really did come from the eternal, unchanging God. Paul warns about this very thing in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5. Listen to what he says. Preach the word. So he's talking to Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And this is what has happened to the church in Thyatira. Not all of them, to be sure, have fallen into this. Jesus mentions some in verses 24 uh, who don't hold to this teaching. And there's a call to re repent in verse 21 uh, that someone had to present to her. Right? He's saying some of you haven't fallen into this and she's called to repent. So somebody can't call someone else to repent if they're guilty of the same thing. So we see that there are some who have not fallen into this teaching, but many have given themselves over to this teaching, and Jesus is not happy with her or the church. But we see with this warning to the church that he loves this woman well because he has offered her an opportunity to repent. 
Verse 21 says, Jesus gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. The opportunity to repent, it is presented, but it is also rejected. She is not willing to lay down her desires to truly honor and follow God. Now we, we, we know that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus offers salvation to all who will repent and believe. So there isn't a sin that you can commit that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus, but it's not applied to you automatically. Right? You have to accept the gift of salvation that's offered to you. And if this doesn't happen, you are still lost in your sin. When we love our sin more than we love God, then we would reject the offer to repent across the board. I don't care who you are. If you love your sin more than you love God, you will reject the opportunity to repent. Right? And when we do this, we're continuing in our rebellion against God and we stand condemned by our own actions. Right? If we will not turn and accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we say, no, I love my sin more than I love you, then you will stand condemned based on that choice. God takes sin seriously. And there are always consequences for our sin. And steeper consequences still when we are instrumental in making other people sin. Right? As we see in verses 22 and 23, there are some steep consequences to the sin of Jezebel and those who follow her. Right? God promises in those verses sickness for her and great affliction for those who follow her. So if, people, if the people who follow her refuse to repent, then God promises they will die. That's what's meant in verses 22 and 23 when Jesus says he will strike her children dead. Now, you know, at first read, you might look at that and go, God's going to kill kids? But that's not what he's talking about here. It could mean her actual children, but more likely this is referring to those who are following her. Right? This could, would be similar to how Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. This would also be her children in the faith that he's talking about killing, right? If they don't repent, Jesus says they will die. If you continue to follow your sinful pattern and you refuse to turn away from that and come back to the God that loves you, Jesus says they will die. And if you have spent any time at all out in the world talking with non-believers about Jesus, you could probably hear collective gasps at the idea of Jesus killing people who refuse to turn from their sin and refuse to stop corrupting others with their sin. Why? Because God is love. Like Jesus isn't violent. Jesus isn't condemning. Right? He's, he's hippie with a peace sign up. He's, he's much more likely to give you a hug than to kill you. So what do we do with this notion when people are thinking that? They hear this harsh, harsh rebuke. You're going to get sick and you're going to die if you don't repent. What do we do with that? Well, we must be careful not to take certain aspects of God's nature and elevate that up higher than other aspects of God's nature. Is God love? Yes, 100%. But is God also holy? Yes, 100%. Is God also righteous? 
Yes, 100%. So it's not like he is 100% love and 30% justice. He's not 100% love and 5% holy. He's 100% across the board and he is not going to tolerate sin. So the only reason why God doesn't kill us outright every time that we sin is because he loves us. That's the only reason. He is giving us the opportunity to repent. He's giving us the opportunity to turn away from that sinful lifestyle and to get right with him. And when that opportunity is rejected, then what more can we say other than a choice has been made and that choice leads to enmity with God? Paul says that the wages of sin is death and eventually God will pay people what they have earned. When we sin, we are earning death. We are earning condemnation. And if we reject the salvation that's offered in Christ, eventually the bill will come due and God will pay us what we have earned. That's what Jesus is threatening here. Repent or die. God takes sin seriously. And when these extreme circumstances happen, Jesus says in verse 23 uh, that then all the churches will know that he is the one who examines hearts and minds and he will give to everyone according to their works. Right? That's not to say that we earn our salvation. It's impossible. We cannot earn a right standing before God. It's just not possible. He's 100% holy and even one sin in us breaks that relationship with him. We cannot earn salvation, but we do earn our condemnation. And Jesus will give everyone what they have earned in that regard. And in Christ, it says that we also earn heavenly rewards of some kind. And I've told you guys numerous times, I don't have any idea what that means. I can't fathom anything being better than Jesus. And so, you know, like in my mind, when I hear heavenly reward, it's more time with Jesus. And so I just can't think of anything that's more important than that or that could possibly be better than that. Uh, We do have a a view of it to a certain extent that's promised here in verses 26 to 29. Uh, Jesus says that those who hold on to the faith, uh, the, the, the faith that they have until he returns, those people will have authority over the nations. I have no idea what that means. Like each one of us will collectively have authority over the nations as believers if we hold to our faith till we die or till he returns. Like who would we rule over? If everyone has the promise of being the ruler of nations, like I don't understand who would be ruled at that point. So I I fully admit I don't understand everything that's going on here. Uh, But it says that Jesus is going to give to those who are faithful in the same way that his father has given to him. I don't know what it means, but I want it. I want more of it. Right. And here comes some of that selfishness in my heart. I want more than you get. So I will try to outserve you. I will try to out honor God more than you because I want more time with Jesus. I don't know how. So let's race to the next service opportunity. Let's, let's see who can get there first as we try to show Christ honor, uh, which is part of our application for today. 
Right? So what do we do with this information from the church in Thyatira? Well, love well and live by faith. Right? We, we see that two, we have two churches back to back that have been commended for their love. We have two churches back to back who have been commended for their service. And so what should we do? We should be those who love well. We should be those who serve well. We should be constantly looking for ways to pour out our time, our talent, and our treasure in order to, to increase the kingdom of God. So we need to love well. We need to live by faith. We need to grow in our service. Right? I want Jesus to be able to look at my life and say, this is what you started with, and you've gotten exponentially better as you've gotten older. I want that to be the story of my life. You started off this way and it was good. And then you got better because you got to be more and more like Jesus. Let's grow in our service. Endure hardship and persecution, right? As I've stated many times, like we're not really in that place where a lot of Christians are in this world where they constantly experience hardship and persecution. But I, th I think it's coming. I think it's down the pipe for us. And the question is, are we going to be ready? And do we value Christ enough to endure it and to, to, to shine brightly in the midst of that persecution? Right, we have to prepare ourselves now for when we get to that point. Because once it's upon us and once we're in the midst of it, and we, are we going to search for what our faith really is then? I mean... You can, but I would recommend you solidifying that foundation of your faith before that hits so that you're not rocked back and forth by trial and, and tribulation. Right, so endure the hardship and persecution and do not tolerate false teaching. Do not tolerate false teaching. Right, listen, I'm not going to be one of those pastors that's going to stand up here self-deprecating and be like, I'm an idiot, you shouldn't listen to me. I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I'm fully capable of taking the Word of God, twisting it however I want to, and presenting it to you in a way that you would probably believe. Which is why you should be reading the Word for yourself. Like if you ever sit there and go, man, Chris does a whole lot of Scripture in his sermons. That's because I want you to know it. I, want, I don't want you to trust me. I want you to trust the Word of God. I want you to be mindful of everything that God has said to you. You have His Word in front of you. If you're looking for a word from the Lord, you have 66 books full of it. And the only way that you're going to be able to determine whether I'm up here talking the Word of God or whether I'm talking the Word of Chris is for you to know the Word. So study it. Learn it. Dig deep into it. Get sound in your doctrine so that if I come up here and start saying, well, God didn't really say that. I mean, it sounds like Satan, right? No. Know the Scriptures. And do not tolerate false teaching. Like if you start hearing some of that nonsense come out of my mouth, somebody come get me that day. Like off the stage now. Because we do not tolerate that. And I can assure you, if I'm sitting right there and somebody is here in this place and they start saying something that is 
completely off the wall. I'm coming up. And that's it. But we have got to to stand firm in the teachings of Scripture and we cannot tolerate that false doctrine because we want it to be true. We want all of a sudden for everything that God says you can't do for us to be able to do it because we don't want to fight that fight. So we must battle against false teaching. And lastly, the last thing I'll say is if you find sin in yourself, repent. Repent. The blood of Christ will cover all your sins. The only sin that it will not cover is a refusal to turn towards God. And so if you find yourself constantly struggling with the same type of sin over and over again, repent. If you find yourself constantly letting this battle slip through your fingers and you keep giving into it, repent. Open your life up to someone else. Help, let them help you. That's what the church is for. We're supposed to come together and be the support that each other needs in times of weakness. And so if you're battling with something and you can't seem to get a grasp of it on your own, bring someone else into that. That's why we're here. But if you see that, you must repent. Don't think that God is okay with it. Because He's not. Right, there are consequences to our sin. Now, in Christ, when I sin, and I will sin every single day, but in Christ, when I sin, I am not condemned by that sin because Jesus paid the price for all of it. And so when I find myself constantly falling into this sin, I can just pick myself up and go back to God with it. He is not condemning me. I'm not losing my salvation for this. I need to get up. I need to dust myself off and move towards Christ so that I can overcome this. And I'm begging that that's what you do as well. Know that when you sin, it, it's not okay, but you have a relationship to God the Father through Christ, and that conviction that the Holy Spirit puts on your heart is a good thing. So submit yourself to it and present yourself before God and say, I messed up again, please forgive me, and he will be faithful to do that. Let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful for the cross of Christ. I'm grateful that you have given us the church so that we can stand watch over each other's lives. And I pray that we would stand watch over this pulpit and that we would not tolerate any false teaching to come from it. I pray that we would be people who are involved in each other's lives so that we would, if we see these moments of, of sinful discretion that we keep falling into, that we would be close enough that we could grab a hold of someone and say, don't do that, God loves you more than that. So help us to be those people. Help us to desire to have open lives full of accountability, full of love, so that we can serve well, that we can live out of our love, that we can have uh, an abundance of faith, and that we would serve well, that the service that we did at the first would be even better at the end because we love Jesus more and more as we go. But we need you to change us into that, Lord, and I ask for that here this morning. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.